Welcome to Timberwood uh, Church's Wednesday night study of Nehemiah again. Tonight we're going to be in chapter 10. As we've been looking at for the last uh, couple of weeks, this is the second part of uh, what Nehemiah was called to do. He was called to come back by God to build the walls around the city of Jerusalem, reestablish it, but he was also called to reestablish the community of the people of God, the people that had returned from exile and were coming back and coming together as a uh, community again. We looked at the first part of that was reading of Scripture. Uh, Ezra had read Scripture, and, and the people heard that, heard the law, heard the, the part of the Pentateuch that, um, that he read that spoke to their, their relationship with God and what that was expected of them. That, by reading Scripture, led them to confession, what we saw last week in chapter 9, and as they heard Scripture, they saw that they were not following the law as they should have brought them to a point of confession, but it also point to, brought them to a point of observing a particular festival in a more correct way. So that's where we're at, and we're going to be looking tonight at the third part of what we talked about of Scripture, confession, and covenant. But first, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us this this document that speaks to who you are and how you've related with your people. And tonight's passage, particularly, Lord, is as we see the renewal of the covenant that you have with your people and how it speaks to not only how you've dealt with them, but how you deal with us. And as we explore that and as we reflect on the new covenant that we live in relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ, help us understand. Also challenge us. Help us see places where we need to, well, just do things differently. But also help us understand the great grace that you're extending by being in covenant, being in relationship with us. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we talked about last week, we were looking at confession And they speak to all that God did in this and all the ways they fell short of this covenant. And we went through chapter 9 and we came to the end of chapter 9 at verse 38 and it says this. Because of all this, all that God has done and how we've fallen short, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Their leaders, the tribe of Levites, and the priests, the subset of the tribe of Levites, who were the mediators and the keepers of the temple and of the uh, aspect of the law of the sacrifices. They sealed the document. So let's go to chapter 10 now and see how this all plays out um, between the people and God. Nehemiah 10. On the seals of the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Seraiah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Malak, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Genathon, Baruch, Meshalam, Abijah, Majamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests. And the Levites? Jeshua the son of Azaniah, Binuai of the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, 
Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalita, Pelaiah, Hanan, Micah, Rahab, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Parash, Pahath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bunai, Asgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Adin, Ater, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshalem, Hazir, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jadwa, Pelatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashab, Halahesh, Pila, Shobek, Raham, Hashabna, Masiah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Malak, Harim, Bana. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. So we ask ourselves a couple of questions. First, why are they renewing the covenant? Why is it necessary to renew the covenant? And then, what is the covenant that they're renewing? And maybe we should start with the second one first and speak about the covenant there are uh, several covenants that are seen by some people in the Old Testament, as many as five. But when we talk about the covenant and the covenant renewal, we always talk, talk about it in the singular. 
So let's talk about these two things. Some people see as many as five covenants. The, the differential between the fourth and the fifth is, a, is there a covenant in the Garden of Eden? Uh, uh, not many people see a covenant there, but some do, and that's a covenant between God and man in the original um, situation of Adam and Eve being created. Then, if, whether you accept that or not, most people see uh, four potential covenants. One's a covenant with Noah, not to destroy the earth again. The second one is the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant with Abraham. We see that as, as he covenants with Abraham who comes out and, prom, and then he promises God, promises the land to Abraham's offspring. He also promises that he will uh, create his offspring to create as many stars as the stars in the sky. He creates this, and out of that comes the, the sign of circumcision as a sign of that covenant. Some people see as a separate covenant of that the Sinai, Mount Sinai covenant, or uh, the uh, Moses covenant through the law. They'll see that as separate. I, we're going to talk about this in a minute. And then the fourth would be the Davidic or the covenant with David, that uh, offspring of David would be on the throne forever. But when we look at this, there's always a reference in singular to the covenant. So how is that? Well, first, the Noah covenant, I would argue, isn't even a covenant. It's a promise. It's a promise by God. It's not a two-party transaction. And, and remember, covenants are agreements, contracts. We're often referred to as treaties. Two parties enter into it, and there's, there's a, usually a greater party and a lesser party. And both parties have obligations, and the greater party has a greater ability to enhance the situation for the lesser party, but the lesser party needs to do its part to fulfill the uh, covenant or the agreement. So if we look at these four and we say Noah is a promise, and I would also argue the Davidic covenant is a is a promise because there's no condition in there for anybody other party to do anything. This is just a statement by God promising David that the, his offspring will be on the, the throne for eternity. So that really leaves us with two. That's Abraham and Moses. And really, they're the same covenant. Because what happens is, is God says he's going to make a people out of Abraham, his offspring, and out of that, will become this group that have the promised land, and he, he blesses them. And then as he does that through uh, redeeming them out of slavery, out of Egypt, as he brings them out, he brings them to Mount Sinai where he gives them the law through Moses. And all the law is is not a covenant. It's a here are the terms for us to be in covenant together. I, holy God, you unholy people, if we're going to be in covenant together, in relationship together, we need some mechanism to do that, and that's what the law does. It provides a moral standard, it provides a civil outline, and it provides a way for when the people fall short of what God's called them to live, we have the sacrificial system. And all that's in place not to save anybody, not to bring anybody into relationship with God. They've already been chosen by God. It's for them to be able to continue in relationship with God because of their unholiness and His holiness. 
And that covenant is between two parties, and both parties have a part. We see it one of the most uh, clear ways is one of the first renewals of the covenant, and it's found in Deuteronomy. Plains of Moab, second generation, first generation dies in the wilderness because they refuse to go into the promised land at Kadesh Barnea. They die in the desert. Their offspring come around to the plains of Moab, going to enter into the promised land. And Moses reiterates Deuteronomy, second law is what Deuteronomy means, reiterates the law to him and renews the covenant and goes through it in great detail. If you do this, God will do this. If you do this, God will do this. In fact, it goes so far as two mountains become the blessings and the curses of the covenant. He lays it out, says, you do this, God will bless you. You do this, God will bless you. You do this, God will bless you. If you don't do this or you do this, God will curse you. If you don't do this or do something wrong, God will curse you. And that's how it's laid out in that kind of contract form. And that's the law, the framework for the covenant that was started with Abraham and is just given some structure through Moses. So we're going to argue really that's really just one covenant, and that is the covenant, often referred to as the, the law. And that's what we're dealing with. Certainly when we look in the New Testament and we hear about the Old Covenant, that is what Paul or, or Jesus or the writers of the New Testament are referring to when they refer to the uh, Old Covenant. So why do they need to renew it? I mean, it's been there. It's been in place for, well, a thousand years. Why do they need to renew it? Why would you ever need to renew a covenant like this? Why did they have to do it in Deuteronomy on the plains of Moab? Because everything had changed. On the plains of Moab, this whole generation wasn't alive when the law was given to them through Moses. And they watched their ancestors die in the desert because of their unfaithfulness and unwilling to trust God and go into the promised land. And they needed to be reminded. It's similar here. Again, as we've talked about, many of the people returning from exile weren't even born when their parents went into exile. They've been living without a temple. They've been living in Babylon or Persia. They've been living centered around a synagogue, but a synagogue had no sacrifices. A synagogue was limited in what it could do in keeping the aspects of the law. They were surrounded by foreigners. They weren't able to live in a, in a God-centered community to the extent that they have the opportunity here in Jerusalem. So they need to be reminded, reminded of how they're to live as the people of God, how they're to live with each other, how they're live, to live with people around them. It's no longer okay because I'm surrounded by Babylonians. Now I'm not, but I still have the Samaritans, I still have Edomites, I still have many people in the area that I'm going to come in contact with, but for the first time I can live in a community of Jews. And they also need to be reminded of how the temple is going to function. Again, the vast majority of these have never lived when the temple functioned. It didn't exist. It had been flattened. So now they come back and they need to be reminded, and we're going to see in 10 aspects of all this, 
they're going to be reminded of how they're to live when there's a temple. It's different. You're to take sacrifices. You have a way to atone for your sins. You have ways to deal with times of days in the worship where before you just go and pray. Now you can actually offer sacrifices and more completely worship God. So they need to be reminded of all that. So that's what they do. They bring the people together. They remind them of the law. They remind that they've fallen short. They they confess their sins. And now they renew their covenant with God. They say, yes, God, we want to be the people that you have called as you've laid out through the law. We want to be those people. And it's evidenced by their leaders signing. Leaders not only in civil matters, the princes, but also the Levites and then the priests who come out of the Levites. It's a representative acknowledgement of the covenant because it's a communal covenant. It's a significant difference in the world we live in today, and we're going to deal with that in a little bit later. But this is a body of people agreeing. It isn't Fred and, and, and Susan in the back saying, uh, you know, I don't think I want to be a part of this. No, it's the entire group of people. Just like when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem, they went, oh, I've been told by God that, that Fran and, and Isaac over there are okay, and we're not to destroy their stuff, and we're supposed to leave them alone, but everybody else we destroy. No, it's not an individual thing. It's very much a communal thing. As we saw in our study of 2 Kings, when the king sings, sins, everyone sins. And so by the leaders signing this, they're saying because we are the leaders and we're signing it, that means everybody is renewing the covenant. Remember, the people of God were chosen as a people group. Not as a collection of individuals that are grafted together as we see in the New Testament. Here it is clearly a people group. Though we find non-Jews or non-Israelites in that people group at times. That is the exception, not the rule. So they renew the covenant. And it's, it's interesting when they go through this. If we, if we look through 10, we look in verse 29. We see... Enter into, it says, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath. That's how the covenant was on. In fact, oftentimes you'll see the covenant referred to as a curse. It's not like it's bad. It's just a reference that the covenant provides for you being cursed if you don't do what you're supposed to do in the covenant. That's the essence of the covenant. Sometimes we get in this idea that that the covenant exists, and if the, if the Israelites or the Jews don't keep their end of the bargain, God throws the covenant away. No, that's not it. It's not, the covenant isn't about if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, I throw away the covenant. No, the covenant is if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. And there's no way out of this covenant. I mean, you can keep breaking the covenant all day, and I can keep punishing you. Again, we see that in Israelite history. The Assyrians, the Babylonians. I mean, eventually the Persians, and then we're going to see it in the Greeks, and we're going to see it in the Romans. It continues. 
God truly never abolishes the covenant. We're going to argue for a different term, fulfillment, but he doesn't do away with the covenant because they don't keep it. He just keeps exercising the covenant as they fail to do their part. What's amazing, though, and we've talked about this so many times, the grace and mercy, the the willing to be long-suffering and executing the curses. The Israelites, for hundreds of years, just don't seem to be willing to keep their end of the covenant. And yet God does not, well, just execute his end completely. And even when he does, we see him here. Again, we've talked about it so many times. There's nothing they did in exile that caused them or made them in a position to deserve to be, you know, redeemed or reunited and brought back. God does it because of His grace and mercy. He could have very easily argued from human standpoints, I'm done with you. I'm going to leave you in exile. I don't ever want to talk or see you again. We're done. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And, and this ability to continue to find a remnant, continuing to find a people, to continue the work of his covenantal work throughout history is truly amazing. So let's look at the items that they, they bring up. They certainly don't go through all the law, though it's a covenant with all law. It says, as we saw, enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses to the servant and observe and do, observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our, um, of the Lord, our Lord and his rules and statutes. So we're talking about all of the, of the Mosaic law, all of the covenant they're agreeing to. But they're going to point out basically four, generally four things. Four things that are very pertinent to their situation. And the first is marriage. Now when they were in Babylon, and, and certainly after you know, the Babylonians were taken over by the Persians, yeah, they married. In fact, we, we know that they married there and they married when they came back. Non-Jewish people. And that's a problem. That, that was a major problem before. That was a problem all the way back to Solomon where this whole mess really kind of got rolling is when you marry somebody that is not of your faith and are of other faiths, they tend to draw you to their faiths. And we see this throughout the Bible. And here we have a group of people that have been regularly marrying non-Jews who come back to this area, have brought wives with them, and are continuing the practice where they're at now, and this is just going to be a problem. As you're trying to reestablish the people of God, and you've already got in there a whole mix of people that are working against that, trying to bring in worship of other gods. If we remember what happens especially in 2 Kings, but, but throughout that whole period, what do they get in trouble for? 
They get in trouble because they didn't keep the law? Generally not. They get in trouble because they worship other gods. Over and over and over and over and over and over. Did I say it 31 times? That's how many times I'd have to say it. They get called short because they are worshiping other gods. You know, whether they brought a lame animal in when they're supposed to bring a perfect animal in, whether they, they were doing the, the Ten Commandments, the moral law that we talk about perfectly, that isn't what's usually pointed out. What's pointed out over and over is that they're worshiping other gods. God, this law is in place not to make you holy. It's to put you in a position so you can relate to the holy. But if you don't want to relate to the holy and you don't want to have him as your only God, you're going to have a problem. I don't care what the law says. And that becomes a problem over and over and over again. Gee, that Canaanite God looks pretty good. Maybe that would help my crops. I'll go worship that Canaanite God also. Oh, by the way, look at that. Oh, that God looks pretty good. Maybe I'll try that God. Oh, you know the Moabites? They're supposed to have really bad gods, but that God doesn't look so bad. Why don't I try that God? Hundreds of years, this is what happens. And now we're going to start a new people of God. We're going to bring them together. We're going to recommit to the, the covenant. And the first thing we got is a whole bunch of people who want to worship other gods in our midst. It isn't going to work. Marriage, first item. Second item is the Sabbath, both the day and the year. We'll explain. The Sabbath day. They, they, they could have kept that in exile, but it's apparent they didn't keep it in exile. Part of that has to do with uh, synagogue maybe not being as powerful an item in their mind. Maybe they just got caught in local custom. But now they're coming back and they're recommitted to the, the, the covenant and the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath is critical part of that. And they're surrounded again by people that are going to want to sell them things or do things on the Sabbath. So that's brought up. How they need to live separated. Wait. In the world, but not of the world. They have to live in the world they're living in. They're going to have to trade with the people are surrounding them. Remember, they're tiny. They don't have a lot of people. They don't have a lot of money. The people around them are much bigger and more powerful, been around longer, and have a lot more money. They need to be in commerce with them. They've got to find a way to do that and still keep the covenant. Then the other aspect is the Sabbath year, the seventh year, where they're supposed to let the land rest, and they're supposed to forgive debts. Remember, we had just talked about that a couple chapters ago, how they seem to be not doing that. They were taking advantage of their fellow Jew, lending him money, but not forgiving the debts on the seventh year. They need to do that. Then two monetary things, the temple tax. And it's been reduced here. It's a third of a shekel instead of a half shekel. It's been reduced, and that's to make the temple run. They never had a temple before. The temple tax has been long forgotten. Now they've got to pay the temple tax again. And they've got to be reminded of this, and they need to covenant to this. That's not a tax we had in Babylon. Why do I got to pay it here? You've got to pay it here because we've got a temple. Oh. And then the other thing is the tithe. It's interesting, too. The tithe 
goes to the, the Levites. Remember, they don't have land. They go to the Levites, and then the Levites tithe to the priests. And usually that's because there's a whole bunch of Levites and a few priests. The problem with our situation here is we have just the opposite. We have a few Levites, and most of them are priests. So it's a significant problem when this tithing to the Levites, who then tithe the tithe to the tithe, who tithe to the priests, there's not going to be a lot of money. So it's very, very, very important that they do take the first fruits and tithe to Levites. So they're reminded of that. So four things, marriage, temple, or marriage, Sabbath, temple, and tithe. There's a whole lot more to the law, but that's, that's what they're pointing out because of their situation. That's a bit unique to what they need to be focused in on. All the other things are there. All the other things are important. But here are four things that they're very pertinent to where they're at. But we're Christian. What? Why does this have to do with us? Why do we care about something like this? Well, it's interesting. It's, it's why they're getting ready to go into exile. Where Jeremiah is reminding them that this is of God. Just don't resist the Babylonians. It'll be better for you. Less people will die. Just surrender, go into exile, do the best you can. He's going to bring you back. And during all that, we find in Jeremiah 31, 31, this passage, and probably the clearest passage in the Old Testament, talking about what God's going to do. He's, and Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they, should, they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now we look at that and we go, okay, well, is, that, is maybe that's what's happening right here in Nehemiah? Maybe this is that new covenant. Maybe they're making a new covenant because it's after the days of the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Maybe he's talking about these days. But he's not. And how do we know? Because when we get to the New Testament, we get to Hebrews. We read where it says, but as in Hebrews 8, starting verse 6, Hebrews 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is literally a quote from the Jeremiah 31. 
when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So no concern. That's different than the Jeremiah quote. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, that's different, and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So clearly this promise in Jeremiah, again, historically before Nehemiah, I know it comes after in the Bible, but becomes before, right before the Babylonians destroy Judah and Jerusalem, he promises this new covenant. And, and we, could, we could say, okay, where is that? Well, it's fulfilled as the New Covenant says, or as the New uh, Testament says in, in Hebrews, through Jesus Christ. In fact, much of what Hebrews is arguing for is that Jesus Christ is this New Covenant, is the total fulfillment of the law, is the total fulfillment of the sacrificial system. And so, we live in a New Covenant. Every time we do communion, not every time, but most times we do communion, virtually every time, we refer to the new covenant when we're taking communion. But how many of us think of a relationship with Jesus Christ as a covenant? It clearly is. You know, most of us don't think of this, but the Bible is broken up into two halves, right? The Old Testament, the New Testament. What does the word testament mean? It means covenant. So literally, the Bible itself is broken up into the Old Covenant and the new covenant. Now, d- does the new covenant mean that the old covenant just is worthless and has totally been replaced? No. But it is a fulfillment of the new covenant, as we just saw in Hebrews. Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of the new covenant. He becomes the new law. The new covenant does not replace. It is just the continuation bringing with it the remnant, the remnant that we've seen from the 12 down to the 2, down to the 1, down to the fraction of the 1, down to the people that return, down to the people that believe in Jesus Christ, this constant shrinking of the original people of God by remnants. And that group comes through and is really the, the foundation of the new covenant. People like Peter and Paul, who are Jews, who Paul says is the first seed of this new people. And it becomes this new covenant in Jesus Christ. A covenant just like any other covenant that has parts to it. I mean, if we were... If we were at a point of renewal of our covenant, or originally with our covenant, and, and we see here in, in Nehemiah 10 where these, these leaders sign the covenant, how do we sign the covenant? 
You ever thought about that? If you're in a covenant with God through Jesus Christ, how have you signed your covenant? Well, where does the covenant reside? Our hearts, right? We sign our covenant when we turn our hearts over to Jesus Christ. Sometimes we think all we need to do is say a few words and leave the covenant line there unsigned. And as long as we attend church once in a while, we're all good. But that just isn't the way it is. Malachi, the last prophet, the last book in our Old Testament, prophet about the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, says it clearly, where God says to the Jews, you don't want me. You just want to do a few things under the law to get what you perceive as the benefits under the law, but you don't want me and the law is all about me. It's the same for us today. When we want salvation, but we don't want Jesus Christ. We go to church a couple of times a month, but really we don't want God. We don't want Jesus Christ. We don't want that relationship. We just want to not go to hell at the end of our lives. And God is clear. There's no magic two, three things you do and you're all good. We sign the covenant with our hearts. Where our hearts are, that's a testimony of whether we're in covenant with God or not through Jesus Christ. We can't be in covenant with the world and be totally fixed on it and yet still think that we're good with God through Jesus Christ. It just doesn't. It's kind of like those Israelites who worshiped those other gods. They say, well, God, I don't see what the problem is. We're worshiping you. We're doing what we're saying. Sure, we've got these other gods, but what do you care as long as we worship you? And God says, no, no. It's me alone or it's not. I will not be one of a few. I will be one. So that's where we're at. It seems easier for the Israelites because they had such a, you do this and you're in good standing. You do this, you're not in good standing. It seems so clear to see whether they're keeping the covenant or not. For us, it seems harder. How do we know we're keeping the covenant? Tell me the five things I need to do so I know I'm right with God and right in the covenant. Except things aren't always as they seem. The Israelites seem to not get it. It seems plain to us as the Bible lays it out, but they keep over and over and over saying, we don't understand, God, what's the problem? The problem is this. Yeah, 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 okay, fine, 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 fine. But really, what's the real problem? So maybe it wasn't as clear under the old covenant as we thought. And maybe it isn't quite as foggy in the new covenant as we think either. I mean, most of us, quite frankly, if we got real with ourselves, we know where our hearts are. 
we know what we long for. We know what we want, who we want to spend time with, who we want to please, who we... Yeah, who we want to be like. That's what the covenant looks like, the new covenant. The ones that's not written on a piece of paper, but written on our hearts. If we want to know about the new covenant, if we want to know how to please the other part of the covenant, God, Yeah, we're going to want to know about it. We're going to want to know what he says about how to be right with him. If, if we don't have time for his word, if we don't have time, I don't mean 15 minutes in a morning where we read something so we can check it off. I mean want to know his word. If we don't want to know his word, we probably don't want him. If church is an obligation, we go to and we check the box just simply because gives us some hope for eternity. Yeah, we probably, probably don't want him. Again, the key is not what we do. What we do is merely an indicator of who we are. Just like the Israelites. They would try to keep the law, but they didn't want God. Do we want God? Is that who we are? Do we want to be in Christ? I mean in Christ. Is he truly the foundation of our life? Yeah. Covenants are interesting things. We really don't use that word much anymore. Contracts is probably the more common word. And we don't really think of God in those kind of terms. I bet you if I, we had this place filled again and I got to ask hundreds of people, tell me about your covenant with God, they'd probably struggle with really articulating other than Jesus Christ and that word is used by him in the Bible somewhere. But it's critical. And, and how do we go about renewing that covenant? I think this example in Nehemiah is so powerful for us today. If we find ourselves maybe not as closely aligned with God as we'd like. This example of Scripture, confession, renewal. Is, is, is an example that is very powerful today as it was 3,000 years ago. His word, the Holy Spirit convicting us in our hearts and us desiring to be in covenant with him again. Try that this week. Just see what God says. Let's pray. Gracious Father.
Again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it. We thank you for this opportunity to be in covenant with you through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you that by turning to him, by agreeing and allowing you to write your covenant on our heart and our acknowledgement of that covenant by turning our hearts to you. We're away for new life, away for peace, away for true contentment. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.